Hey, it's Steve and welcome to Share, a podcast that sets out to do just that. From stories and reflections to ideas and concepts, each episode will dive into a wide range of topics and discussions that come from a journey through life. The simple fact I've discovered is when we share, we empower, not just ourselves, but each other. Are you planning your next holiday? Let the team at Mind and Body Travel inspire you. With a focus on wellness and well-being, the team at Mind and Body Travel can assist you whether you're looking to attend a retreat, test yourself on an adventure, tick off that bucket list trip, or just create a travel itinerary that includes all that you want in a holiday while taking into account all that your mind and body needs. Revolutionising the way people look at holidays and travel, they believe that travel should deliver nourishment for your soul, clarity for your mind, and renewed focus upon your return. So you ready to take off? Then it's time to check in with the team at Mind and Body Travel. Just visit www.mindandbodytravel.com. And then by just taking one step at a time and really breaking that down and, and reevaluating what I was defining success as, that allowed me to suddenly climb out of that hole. And then that allowed me to actually move forward. And then that allowed me to actually get through the field. And that allowed me to be in a position where, guess what? You can actually get through here. And it, it helped me have that conversation of going, well, this is what hard is. This is what hard looks like. This is what hard feels like. This is when people quit. This is when you wanted to quit. And this is where people who get the outcomes that you want make the decisions and execute the behaviors that you need to do now. So if you want that outcome, that's what you have to do. In this week's episode, it's time to unlock your sense of adventure, to work on increasing your resilience and get inspired as my guest takes us on a journey. One that isn't just filled with success and triumphs, but also the lessons and reflections he's had through the trials and tribulations that happen during life. He's a walking and talking example of not giving up if at first you don't succeed. He's taken his body and mind into environments and conditions that most of us are more than happy to just watch from a distance. It's through those adventures, challenges and experiences though, that has unlocked his deep philosophical view on the world and life. Continuing to fuel his passion to help others challenge their own limits and potential. As a self-confessed nerdy husband and dad, he's also a sought-after keynote speaker and author, adventurer and mountain climber. It's my absolute honour to introduce you to my friend and the rogue scholar himself, Mr. Paul Watkins. Well, Paul, welcome to Share. Good morning, Steve. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. Mate, it's uh, amazing. I, I came across you, my brother saw you speak at a wellness event, I think. Mm-hmm. It sounds like something I do. <laughs> he says, oh, you've got, to, you've got to check this guy out. My brother is a travel agent, runs a travel business. So, so I followed you on LinkedIn and, and on Instagram. And when the podcast came up, I thought, oh, I've got to interview this guy. This guy looks like he could talk a bit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I've, I've seen a lot of your stuff and you've got an amazing story. And probably the best place to start would be a bit of a snapshot on, on your journey so far. Yeah, that's, that's not a snapshot. That's a huge panoramic, <laughs> you know, it's one of those multi-frame pictures, that kind of stuff. I think one of the things I try to talk to people about when I talk about my background is that I've had quite a varied background and I've spent most of my life doing things that I'm uniquely unqualified to do. Like the only job that I've ever had that I would say I was truly qualified to do was a pharmacist. So, you know, I did the traditional thing, you know, high school, got the degree, did all the right things and went and did that for a period of time. And then post that, I've gone out and done this, like you name it, I've done it. I've worked as a chippy. I've owned a gym. I was a certified AWF weightlifting coach. I'm an endurance coach. 
I've done importing and online retailing, keynote speaker, like anything you can imagine, Read, um, property development, you name it. I've had a dabble in all of it and not because I had the degree on the wall or I'd been qualified to do it, just because I've been curious and wanted to walk through that door and go, what, what's in that room? Can I do that? I don't know. Let's find out. That's led me from going, oh, I wonder if I could do that little trek and doing that to you know a decade later climbing some of the toughest mountains in the world, not because I had a plan or I was qualified. I've just followed my nose and gone, I'm interested in that. I want to learn about that. It's made me feel a particular way to walk through that door and see what's in that room and kind of go from there. So I had a very traditional path to start with, like stock standard, you know, mum, dad, younger brother, nuclear family, went to a private boys' school in Melbourne, not because I had a, we were rich or anything. I was just a nerd. I got a full academic scholarship, so that's the only way I could go there. Uh, my parents sacrificed a lot so I could go and do that. Um, and then got into pharmacy and, and did that for a period of time and then branched out into weird things from there, mainly out of a driver of not wanting to die at work. Like I was very successful in that world, but it nearly killed me, literally. So I wanted to to branch out and do something different. And that opened doors that 20 years ago, 30 years ago, I hadn't even dreamt of. It wasn't that I thought oh, I'll never do that. I didn't even know that existed. It's led me to some very, very weird places which means we get to talk about a whole lot of different rabbit holes when I talk to people like you. <laughs> that's awesome. And, and that reflection around, and that's very strong these days, is getting people out of the work environment, getting them mm. out into nature. I was chatting to someone yesterday and he said to me, he said, adventuring when he's climbing mountains, that is the best self-development you can ever get. It is. And it doesn't have to be, I think you get to rap sometimes people go, oh, I've got to run a marathon or I have to climb Everest or do whatever. And that's not the case. Like you need to pick a point that's correct for you. Hmm. And for some people, that's as simple as you need to see the sun and touch grass and you need to do that every day or a couple of times a day. And if you can start with that, we're already going to make huge progress. And for others, it's about, okay, well, we need to start going out and maybe you're doing the park run or you're going to do this with your kids or you're going to go do Kokoda or whatever it is. Like you, you pick the point for you. Adventure doesn't have to be Everest. Adventure just needs to be well outside of your normal daily bounds and your normal map and it has to have a risk of failure. Like there's, mm. there's got to be a substantial chance that you could fall over and this doesn't end the way you thought it would. And if it ticks those boxes, boom, you've got yourself an adventure, my friend. Go forth and do and let's see what happens just want something outside of your current map and something that you could fail at. Go for that. And that is where you are now. And then we start expanding the map as we go from there. So what was your first taste of adventure? My first taste of adventure, I guess, look, I was, to give some context, I'm a nerd, like super nerdy kid at school, like maths, chemistry, biology, it made sense to me. Like I didn't just get it, like it was easier. But all, yeah, it fits, I get it. That all works, that's fine. Um, zero sporting ability, like none, like total shocker. But for me, I guess adventure, like I did the scouts thing. I went to a school that had army cadets for four years here out in the bush every year for camp and all those kind of things. So I did all those kind of things. For me, real adventure started when, as I said, I was in pharmacy. I was a very successful businessman in terms of being a pharmacist. So I'd grown big businesses, but it was literally going to kill me. Uh, and I, I needed to get out and kind of break that cycle and get some perspective about who I am and what I am and what I'm capable of. And I went and did a very, very basic trek in Nepal, like really low-level normal stuff. Uh, I loved it. And I came back and went, well, 
I feel very differently as a human now. I've done something like that. I kind of opened a door and mentally and physically and emotionally to go, there's a whole landscape over there I haven't even thought about. And then I came back and did the Kokoda track. My grandfather in World War II had fought in Rabaul in New Britain, which is just off the coast of New Guinea. He was alive at the time, so I wanted to go and retrace his footsteps, did the Kokoda track and came back and went, this is amazing. Like, I, I, What's next? No plan, just what's next? And then just did a harder trek and then could I climb a mountain? I don't know. Let's find out. And did something really basic and just started adding layer on layer on layer from there. and. That got quite substantial until I reached a point where I was doing some of the hardest mountains going around, some of the highest peaks on, on numerous continents, including Africa, South America, North America, season in the Antarctic, and climbing big mountains, big mountains where I'll be on expeditions and there will be other expeditions where not everyone was coming home. Like we were talking, we've, we've worked our way up to that. Not because of a plan, just iterate, test. Some worked well, some didn't. I should clarify that I have failed almost as many summits as I've succeeded in. And, and that's it. That's part of the course. It's okay. You know, welcome to the human race. It just makes it normal. So that's kind of a little taste of adventure. And it just opened up all those doors and, and expanded that map. So through all those experiences, tell me about your oh fudge cookie moments. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's been numerous of those. Like, and, and some of them are some of them are real kind of cultural shocks. Like I remember when I first, I went to, um, I went to climb Kilimanjaro. So in Tanzania and Africa, I remember like flight over, got off the plane, got like a, a guy's going to drive me from the airport to the hotel. We were all meeting everybody. And this is quite early in my mountaineering career. And like, just as strikes you, like I'm driving along this dirt road. There's like Savannah as far you can see. There was a, a local guy walking along the road, like dressed in what I would consider kind of tribal wear, like I don't know, but it, it looked different to me. And you've got this guy listening to the, the World Cup soccer on the radio. I'm like, this is country town. This is way, we're way off reservation here. This is really, really different. So those sometimes you get those shocks or, you know, the first time you go to a third world country. I've been to the slums in Delhi and, and through India and, and through the back blocks of Nepal, like way out in the back blocks. And you realize that most of the world doesn't live like you. Most of the world lives a completely different existence compared to what you do. So those moments are good and, and they're healthy. And then you have those moments on mountains where, oh, we're in really depot here. Like this could go really, really wrong. Like we're often uh, big mountains are in a, a rope team, so we be tied in teams of three or four. And I've had times on mountains where I've been leading that team and I've missed a clip on a bolt somewhere. The guy up the back yelled out, hang on, we've missed that. Like if you slip, the three other people, we're all going down that glacier for like a thousand meters. So hang on, we've like a millisecond, we didn't see that because it was buried in a snow drift. And just you have those little moments that could bring you back into reality. So it really is a collection of all these different chapters of experiences that are, it's not always about, oh, I was scared or I was terrified or, or what have you. It's just about what you thought was your world got cracked open and we, we discovered all this other stuff that makes together the picture of what the whole world looks like, not just your little corner and your little problems or issues or realities of how your life is. You get outside that map and you realize there's just a myriad of stuff you need to go out and find and expose yourself to that you then get to bring back into your real world or your world and your experience, and then you get to use that and leverage that in your own life. 
Like I always joke that when you've spent weeks living in like a bivy bag in minus 40, no, no indoors, no nothing, if it's a bit cold in the morning or, you know, the hot water's off or whatever, you don't care. Like it doesn't, like everything gets recalibrated. Once you've been in that kind of experience, once you've had to live off just frozen food that you've been dragging with you for a week somewhere or three weeks somewhere, you, you start to appreciate and evaluate issues with a very different set of metrics, which I think is very healthy. Yeah, wow. Actually, it was interesting. I was listening to a short video of yours this morning while I was in the shower. As you do. And I'm, yeah, as you do. And I'm, a bit, I'm about four or five weeks into cold showers. Yep. I've done it previously and I go to the gym and we do cold plunge and everything like that. And the benefits of cold showers are brilliant. But when I was sitting there going the, I don't know, 18 or 19 degrees that's coming out of the cold tap this morning and then I'm listening to you saying minus 50. <laughs> okay, it's, it was a different perspective. So yeah, it's funny to you, like, I think most people would assume that I'm like the cold shower, cold plunge guy. I don't do cold plunge. I don't do cold showers. Like I do occasionally if I need it for recovery purposes or if I need it for like if I'm prepping for an expedition that's going to be that cold, I might do some work on that. But I don't do that. People go, well, shouldn't, you, you know, you're the guy that does all these things, surely you'd cold plunge. I'm like, no, you need to understand why would you cold plunge? And for a lot of people, it's not the physiological aspects, which are excellent. They're doing it for the mental and psychological aspects, mm. which are also excellent. But I'm in a position where I don't feel I need to do that. Like I go out and do hard things all the time, so I don't need to add more hard things. I've got enough hard things that I do and feel that I have a good mental toolkit for doing that. So do I cold plunge? No. Is it because it's not good? No, it's brilliant for you. It just wouldn't deliver me anything. It would just be really hard and not necessarily deliver me any more benefit. I've got enough hard things on the plate that I do regularly through, you know, self-choice. <laughs> Tell me about the Arctic Ultra. Yeah, Arctic Ultra is like that was one of those things where, again, no plan, fell into it. I've done three major single-stage self-supported Arctic Ultras over the last four years. I've done two in the Canadian Arctic and one in the European Arctic. And I only got into them because I got out of mountaineering. So I was doing mountaineering, had got very high up, no pun intended, in that kind of space, but had reached a point where it's okay when you're a single guy, like your risk-reward ratio is different, but then you get a partner and you get married and you have kids and you're like, all those chips you're playing with are no longer your stack. Mm. Some of it's your stack, but some of it's your kid's stack and your wife's stack and your family's stack, and you need to start honouring those parts of the agreement. I'd reached a pinnacle of that climbing. I, I, I needed to step away from that. We, we pushed the envelope as far as we could without really taking a risk that was not going to honour the fact that you have different hats on. But you still have a hat that's you and you still want to do things that are important to you. So how do you find that balance? How do you thread that needle? And so for me, I sat back and went, well, I've got a weird skill set. I'm really good at long-haul endurance racing. I'm very good in cold environments. I'm a nerd who's fairly disciplined, so I'm really good at kind of logistics and those kind of behaviors. Is there a field that I can apply that? And I randomly saw a race. It was listed in you know, the top 13 hardest races in the world which was the first Arctic Ultra I went and attempted and went, I've actually got a skill set that on paper makes me really well qualified for that. Maybe we should have a dip at that. Yes, it'll be epically difficult, but the risk profile in terms of are you going to die? Probably not, no. But is it still going to be incredibly difficult and kind of tick all the boxes that you want it to tick? 
Yeah, absolutely. So I signed up to do a 583-kilometre single-stage, self-supported, non-stop race in the Canadian Arctic, inside the Arctic Circle in 2017. Uh, And I prepped really hard for a year, ticked all the boxes, did everything right, turned up and got completely crushed, absolutely chewed up and spat out. To give that some context, that race has an 80% DNF rate. So if there's five of us on the start line, four of us are not going to see the finish line. They've had years where all five, like no one made the finish line. They had years where out of the 25 or 30 athletes, no one got there. So you knew that the numbers were against you, but you, you're going with a positive attitude. They got completely, utterly crushed. Got halfway out of the 25 people that started that race. When I pulled the pin, there was only seven of us left. And in the end, only five people made it to the finish line. And that sent me home with, you know, battered ego and bruised body and mental and emotional. You've been smacked and sent home. And people go, oh, you have to come back and deal with that failure and have to reflect. And you can kind of go, well, I, I failed. You know, it was a disaster. We just push it aside and we move on. Or you can really evaluate it and look at it and go, well, what did I learn? Like you still, I, I managed 250-odd Ks out of the 580 in that race. And when I came home and looked at what did I learn, well, I got, I got knowledge and I got experience. I had the experience of still doing 250 Ks in the Arctic, dragging a sled in minus 40 plus. I got knowledge about what I did wrong, which was everything, which means you have knowledge about what to do right, do the opposite of everything you did that time. And I also learned a really valuable lesson from the people that did finish, those five people that finished. When I was honest with myself and reflected on what did they do that I didn't, like are they, do they have magic or are they elite humans, they weren't. They were really normal people. They just did two things better than me and everybody else. They made really high-quality decisions about what to do next, no matter how small that was. And then they had the discipline to execute that decision, regardless of how they felt. Tired, cold, hallucinating, starving, you know, exhausted, didn't matter. What is the thing I need to do now? Do that. Okay, now what's the thing I need to do now? Do that. And if you do that long enough, you get to finish. And they just repeated that cycle and stayed disciplined and made great quality choices longer than anyone else and got to the end. So I came home and kind of took that knowledge and and went, okay, if I went back, what would I do differently? How would I apply that knowledge? If I went back and said, you don't have to be motivated, I was motivated. The people that finished were motivated. They were disciplined. Okay, how would a disciplined person approach this? So I recrafted my entire approach to it, went back two years later. The race was now 614 kilometres long. And not only did I finish it that time, I actually won it. I became the second Australian to finish it and the first Australian to win it. Just as a, a true dichotomy from DNF absolutely crushed to got to the top of the podium. And that really was, I didn't become a different human in two years. I really just changed my mindset around how I would prepare and especially how do you execute in that. And that was the tale of my first two. And then I went to Sweden in March this year to compete in a European one, 503-kilometre, full backcountry wilderness, similar Arctic event, self-supported, drag your own stuff, single stage, away you go. And that was soul-crushingly hard. <laughs> it was incredibly difficult. But I came away with a second place in there. But strangely, that race means more to me than the one that I won because that race, 
I, I found myself in a very dark hole about halfway through. I just mentally, physically, and emotionally just dug myself into this huge crater and was ready to quit, was absolutely going to quit. I couldn't do it and managed to just literally step-by-step dig myself out of that hole, get back on my feet, and then work my way all the way back to the front and ended up finishing second place. So even though you 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 don't get a gold, for me, getting from that really bottom of the well position to get myself out and get to a position where I crossed the finish line I thought I'd never see, that meant more to me than being able to stand on the top of the podium somewhere else. Hopefully that makes sense. Yeah. So when you were in that hole and you had to pull yourself out, what were some of the questions you were asking, Paul? I think I'd gone into that race early this year with a different mind. Like I'd gone there to win. Like I'd gone there going, okay, can I take the lessons that I learned in the last race where I did win? Can I replicate that? Being a scientist, like, did you get lucky? Or do you actually have a replicatable system and mindset and approach that you can then reapply and get similar kind of results? So I'd went there putting that mental pressure on myself, going, well, I'm going to get, as soon as I say go, I'm going to try and get as far up the food chain as possible and get out there and just take souls and crush and take names and go for it. And then you turn up and it's a thousand times harder than you thought because this was full backcountry wilderness. And the environment's like, that's a cool story, mate, but that's not how we're going to play this game. It's not going to be what you think. It's going to be colder, windier, deeper snow, harder trails. It's not going to go the way you think it is. I think one of the turning points for me was I'd got to a checkpoint, which was about halfway, and said, okay, I'm going to pull the pin at this checkpoint. And I'd I'd kind of coming into that checkpoint, my brain had said, okay, we believe we're going to quit at that checkpoint. Let's play two games at the one time. You can mentally continue to get to that checkpoint knowing that you'll quit, but I want you to behave in terms of when you eat, sleep, drink, execute, as though maybe you won't to give yourself the opportunity. Leave that door open. But I know when you get there, you'll quit. That's okay. But let's just leave that door open. Let's just behave like someone who won't quit in terms of what are the logistics. So you get to that checkpoint, which is about halfway. And I said, look, I'm going to, in my head, I'll get into that checkpoint going, oh, DNF, but let's eat and sleep here, get a couple of hours sleep, and then just then make your choice. So I did that. I had something to eat, had a couple of hours sleep. Like this was day three or four, and you've only had three or four hours sleep in the preceding four days. Slept for two hours, woke up, and my body went, you got a little bit more if you want. Because you've been doing the logistics and executing like someone who would continue, and you gave yourself your body that few hours, there's a little bit more in the tank. So mentally, I went, okay, well, what's worse? You wanted to win. Oh, you're not going to win anymore, so you threw your toys out the cot and you quit because you didn't get what you wanted. Or do we stay in the game? Keep yourself in the game and see what happens. Imagine if you went from the guy who was in the bottom of the well, just busted and hallucinating and frozen, and went, oh, I'm going to quit, to you made it all the way. I still had 300 kilometers to go at that point, really hard, remote kilometers. I said, just, just get to the next checkpoint. Just do one thing at a time. Stop thinking about the finish and where, what time and who you'll beat and all that rubbish. Just Let's just do the next checkpoint. And the step to the next checkpoint was horrendous. It was really bad and I had a horrible time, but I got to the next checkpoint. I went, oh, who cares about what time it took or how he went? But we made that. Could we do one more checkpoint? So you just break it down into those little steps. And as I chipped away at that, I reached a checkpoint where I was with a German athlete, Stefan, and we were both in there. And 
one of the guides or one of the um, support crew, the medics there said, oh, you guys are you guys are doing it really well. Like I'm really impressed with how you guys are executing your race. He said, the two guys that were winning last year, we had to separate them all the time. They were literally coming to blows because they're trying to outgame each other. But you guys are you're behaving really, really well for two guys who are out the front. I'm like, sorry, what? So you guys are out the front, like you're, you're coming first and second. By executing the little steps and getting the little things right, I got myself out of the hole, worked my way through the field and, then, and found myself back in the position I wanted to be in the first place. And then, of course, Stefan and I just went to war for the next few days to see who could get to the end. But for me, it was really, I was convinced that it would be a failure, that I could not do it. I just buried myself in that story. And then by just taking one step at a time, and really breaking that down and, and reevaluating what I was defining success as, that allowed me to suddenly climb out of that hole. And then that allowed me to actually move forward. And then that allowed me to actually get through the field. And that allowed me to be in a position where, guess what? You can actually get through here. And it, it helped me have that conversation of going, well, this is what hard is. This is what hard looks like. This is what hard feels like. This is when people quit. This is when you wanted to quit. And this is where people who get the outcomes that you want make the decisions and execute the behaviours that you need to do now. So if you want that outcome, that's what you have to do. So for me, that journey of that race was very, very difficult, but I'm proud of that because I went through that process. Like I had to go to the bottom of the well and come back out and navigate that to get through that, to get the outcome that I ended up getting. And that felt more important to me than the outcome itself. Yeah. There's one thing watching the Thai rescue documentary and it aligns well with what you've just said there. The guy said, oh, it's impossible. Mm. And the guy said, if it was possible, what would that look like? Mm. Yep. Yep. And if, even if it was possible, what would be the next thing you do? I think it's a Tiago Forte quote. You're not sure what to do. You know, What's the smallest and easiest thing you can do now that moves the needle in the direction you need it to go? And just do that. And for me, sometimes in that race, that was simply, you need to eat. So just eat. Don't even think beyond the next two minutes. I need you to quickly and efficiently make a meal because everything's freezing the second you stop. You're freezing, your food's freezing, your water's freezing. What's the best thing you can do? Get calories in. Okay, cool. Stop. Get calories in. Get moving. Go. Okay, what's the next thing you can do? You should drink. Okay, drink. Okay, what should I do now? You need to get your pace up to where it should be. Okay, let's do that. And you just break it down to those tiny steps. And then all of a sudden, you start stacking those things. 12, 24 hours later, you're like, oh, wow, we've, we've made some progress. But we've kept the engine running and we're still hydrated and we're still thinking and we've moved and made some distance and the checkpoint's closer than it was before. And all of a sudden, we've moved forward and the picture gets a little bit clearer. The next steps get a little bit easier and then away you go. So that for me was a a really educational process to go, yeah, I have a system and the system works, but it's still hard work. Just having the system doesn't mean it's easy. It just means you have a roadmap. You still got to follow the roadmap. So through, through obviously these competitions, through your adventuring, what are some of the things you've most learned about yourself? I think for me, it is you have to have the experience. You have to go out and do things. And I think there's a couple of points in that. First is when you have that bias for action, when you go out and actually do something, it brings your expectations and reality into the same room. You get immediate feedback. So if you're looking at it from an athletic point of view, when you turn up to a marathon or you're going to climb up, you can turn up to a mountaineering expedition or whatever it is, the mountain or the race or whatever 
doesn't care about your business card or your income or your degree. All it cares is, did you do the work to earn the right to be here and execute what you got to do? And if you didn't, thanks, go home, bye. And if you did, then you have the opportunity to get the job done. So it gives you immediate, real-time, realistic feedback about did you do the work or not? Boom. And then you can come back from that going, yes, I did. No, I didn't. Like it's very binary. And if it's no, then what do we need to change? What didn't work? And all of a sudden, you've got knowledge. I can prune the option tree a bit and know what I should do next time. The other thing that it does is it helps you really write the story of your own existence. I often talk to people about this this narrative that you build, this story you tell yourself of who you think you are. And when you go out and have these experiences, and it doesn't have to be ridiculous stuff like I've done, just things that are off your normal map. When you do that, you start to realize that you have capacity to write amazing chapters in your story Mm. and that those chapters aren't bound by the words on your business card or the words on the degree or what your parents think or your friends think or whatever that is. It's your story and it's going to be written whether you like it or not. So you may as well write it. And I found the best way to write the best story is to go out and have experiences, you know, live your life and do things. Will they always work? No, not at all. You will often fail, fall over, disaster, what have you. Welcome to the human race. That's how it works. But you're still stacking those chapters and building that story even when you fall over. You're still getting knowledge and experience. You're actually still moving forward. So for me, that's been the the real things that have helped me continue to do these things or continue to look for the next room where I can open the door and go in and see what's in there and do that, building that story and and helping me build a, a very comprehensive picture of what I can actually do. What's left on the bucket list? Yeah, it's a good question because you get that. You come home and people are like, oh, what's next, what's next, what's next? And there's an expectation that what's next must be stupider and bigger than the previous thing that you've done. One of the lessons that I've learned kind of slowly, but it's become really clear to me now, is that more often than not, the choice of what's next is more about what I think other people want me to do versus what I want to do. And that can be a very hard thing to split. I use a two-step process for when I'm evaluating, just using mountaineering and racing as an example. Two-step process for whether I'm going to go do a thing. The first is if you have an idea or saw that race, would love to do that or expedition or whatever, don't say anything or do anything for 30 days. Just think about it. And at the end of the 30 days, reflect. How much did you think about it? If you thought about it every day, it's important and you want to do it. Cool. If you didn't really think about it that much, maybe it's not really that important to you. So you maybe it isn't worth the sacrifice and the time and the, the effort that will be put in, not just by you, but all the people around you to support you. But let's say it is important enough and you thought about it enough. Then you get to the second question, which is the hardest one. If you could do it and no one would ever know and you could never tell a soul that you did it, do you still want to do it? And if you're very, very honest with that question, that tells you why you were doing it. Are you doing it for me? Paul wants to go do this. Or am I doing it for Paul because he wants to do it so he can tell Steve that he did it? And they're very different reasons. And when you go do the thing and it all goes pear-shaped, if you were doing it because you just wanted to tell Steve that you did it, you'll fall out. You'll pack it in. If you're doing it because it matters to no one else but me, but it matters so much to me, you will grind it out and you will get there. Like You will have that drive to get that job done. So I've said no to big expeditions multiple times because – They look cool, they're epic, world-class, world-first kind of stuff, 
but it was about, when I was honest, it was about me being able to tell other people that I did that, not I want this so bad, I'm prepared to put myself through the training and the cost and all that, and then ask my family to make their own sacrifices so that it can go and do these things. So you've really got to be honest about, is that what you want or is it what you think other people want you to want? And you've really got to spend time on, on really deliberating hard about that. And that's not just races, that's your entire life. Mm. Things you're looking for, the job, the car, the, the whatever it is, is that what you want or is it what you want because you think other people expect you to have that or want that or, or look that way or have that job or that title or whatever it is? And so it really is spending that time and understanding who you are and what you really want. I also think that in life, sometimes we, at different stages, look at something as a goal or something that we want. Mm. And then by the time we get to the point, we're kind of led towards that, oh, we're going to do that trip or we're going to buy that business or we're going to buy that house or we're going to move to this location. And sometimes you're almost on auto. Mm. Then you get to the point where you're sitting, where you've achieved something and you've gone, I've actually grown. I actually didn't, I didn't want this anymore. No. But- <laughs> and I've learned that the hard way too. Like you actually, you think the destination's what you're after, but you're not. If you can stop and actually find joy in the journey, the destination doesn't matter anymore. So, but that's really like that sounds great and it looks really cool on Instagram. But the reality is that is fundamentally one of the hardest things I've found to do is to find joy in the journey and actually stop worrying about the destination. The destination almost becomes a lever to allow you to have the journey because all the stuff happens during the journey, mm. not at the end. I often talk about the fact that racing as an example. I like to think of the event as the celebration, all the work you put in to get to the start line versus you do all this, you know, you do weeks, months, years of prep, and then you turn up for an event that might last a day, a week, a month, whatever it is. And you put all that pressure into that moment, which can go right or wrong for any number of reasons, when you should look back at that long tail of all the sacrifices, the discipline, the work you did, the planning, the prep, the strategy, all that stuff that's really valuable. Celebrate that and then go do the thing that you wanted to do. It also allows you to understand that if the thing you wanted to do is a complete disaster, like I've DNF'd plenty of races and events, you realize that that you don't lose all the work that you did, like the journey still existed and you still have the knowledge and experience and training. Like if you trained for six months for an event and the event was a disaster for whatever reason, the six months doesn't get deleted. You don't lose that work. You keep that body of work. You built that body of work and that behavior and the steel of Goggins quite like you calloused your mind for that six months. You still have all that. So it really is that and I'm still working on this, trying to find that ability to really stay present in the journey and understand that that's, that's the point. The journey is the point. Like everyone's trying to get to retirement or get to the point where they've got enough money to tell everyone to nick off and they can do whatever they like. And then they get all the way to the end and get to that point and realize that, oh, hang on, I'm at the, the tail end of everything and the everything has already passed me. That's where you should have been enjoying and, and being present and having the experience because that was the journey, not the destination. That's where all the fun is and that's where all the important stuff is and the work and the family and all those things. Find a way to be present in the journey and the other stuff at the end is just a celebration. Now, over 100 days ago, you made a big commitment to start a daily dose. Yeah, so I started this ad hoc 
way back in COVID, like just as a way to kind of record a, a quote and some thoughts around how that made me feel and what I thought the context and discussion was. And I did it for a little while during COVID and it didn't do much. And coming back while I've been working on LinkedIn, I felt like, oh, I really, I enjoyed that personally. I should bring that back. And whilst it's not as much work as it may seem, like it, it's a 90-second video, most of it is unscripted. Like I'll have the quote and I'll have one or two kind of trigger thoughts in my head. I'll just hit record and go, hey, here's the quote, ba-boom. Here's what that made me think about, ba-boom, and that's it. And then you get the subtitles on, do all that kind of jazz and bang, throw it on the internet. And originally I thought, oh, I'll do it for a couple of weeks and see how that feels. And then thought, no, you can hold that discipline. Let's just, let's get a body of work going. And I've, I've recently, as you mentioned, just crossed over 100 days of doing that, seven days a week. Just have an interesting quote, put some context and thoughts to it. Keep it under 90 seconds because people have tiny attention spans. Throw it out there, and then let's do that every day and, and get that body of work building. And it's been sparked some great conversations and discussions, and people push back and argue and disagree. And I found that really good for me as well to go, oh yeah, that's a more nuanced view than I had. I didn't think of that. Or I've put up a quote ninety days ago, and I'll come back to it and go, you know what? I've, I've thought about that again, and I reckon I was wrong, or I've changed my position or my feelings or thoughts about that. So it's been fun <laughs> in a weird kind of way. I love its articulate, thought-provoking, and and it's entertaining as well. So for anyone listening, if you don't know what it is, jump on to LinkedIn and and check out Paul. He posts a daily dose each day, which is good. I I love watching him. Yeah, thanks, thanks, mate. I appreciate it. And look, for me, I'm just hoping I'm adding to the discourse. Like it's it's easy enough to get on the socials, and ninety percent of it is just fluff. It's I can see the the same stuff, or it's stuff that doesn't elevate the discourse. Whereas I look at LinkedIn and go, well, am I adding to the quality of the conversations that are out there? Like there's a lot of just spam comments and just AI-generated content that you haven't filtered through your own brain. Like I have no problem with you using AI to develop some broadsheet stuff, but then filter it through your own lens and add to it and, and nuance it. But a lot of it's just stuff thrown at the wall and people seeing what'll stick. Whereas I'm going, if I'm going to put stuff out there, it needs to elevate the discussion and stuff I want to look back at and go, yeah, I, I added to that. I felt that was worthy of my time and other people's time. I'm, I know how busy I am. So when I go around asking people to give up time of their own day to listen to me, it's got to be worth their time. It has to be mm. justifiable. You can't just throw rubbish out there. So it's been good just to hold that mindset and that discipline around the quality of what you're putting out. And you can tell with your posts and your videos, you've got that academic understanding and that almost philosophical thinking around a lot of things, which is good because sometimes I'll, I'll listen to it and I'll watch it and I'll go, yeah, that's a good question. Gets you thinking deeper. Yep. And that's my point. Like When I do keynotes and stuff, I'll, I tell people at the start, you're not going to get a five-point plan. We're not doing that. We're not going to do a five-point plan. We're not going to do trust falls. We're not going to sing Kumbaya. I'm not going to give you a hug and tell you it's going to be fine because none of that's true. It probably won't be fine at times at times. And Kumbaya will feel good and that kind of stuff. And I can put motivational quotes up and we'll put up all the Top Gun posters and we'll play the Rocky Four training montage and you'll feel great. And then two days from now, you'll wake up and look in the mirror and you'll still feel like the same person you felt like a week ago. And I haven't helped you. So what my goal is when I present is really, I want you to think differently about who you are, what you're capable of, what is the story you're telling yourself. And then let's look at how do you take control of that narrative and how do you build it so that you do exactly what you said. You go away and you go, oh, that's made me think. Like I'm really 
reevaluating that and how do I feel about that? How does that turn up in my own life? How could I take charge of that? How could I change that, eliminate that, add that, those kind of things? That I think is the job of someone who is presenting or trying to lead or keynoting or whatever you want. I want people to leave in minutes, hours, days, weeks, months after you've gone, they're still thinking about how they can apply that rather than going, oh, here's a five-point plan. Well, that's great, but if it doesn't work for them, you've actually left them with nothing at all. Here's how I want you to reevaluate and really redesign kind of the operating system up here in a way that will work for you because then it sticks. And now you're going to wake up and look in the mirror and feel better about who you see there and feel like you have more control over that person and their narrative and their story. Now we're making progress. Reading through them, looking through the content, I was thinking there might be a book in the works. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned this. I wrote a book after my first two Arctic races, after the, the DNF failure and then coming back and winning. And I wrote a book about that process, about what I learned and kind of ran through Half adventure, half, I think my editor called it self-help. It's like, it's not really a blazing self-help book, but it is a self-help book. It's like, here's a great adventure story of a race that went terrible. And here's a great adventure story of the race that then went really, really well. And then here's a whole bunch of lessons. What did we learn? How do we get from there to there and put that together? Uh, and I've, I've reached a point where I've actually kind of sold out of my first edition runs. I need to now make that decision of going, do I do a second edition or do I write another book? And I've got, I've got the poster notes on the wall behind me there. I've got, it's, it's in there and it's kind of, I'm trying to wrestle this thing into a shape that will hopefully turn out to a book. And the working thesis at the moment is really that, that question that I think a lot of people kind of in my cohort a little bit. So that, middle years of career, you've got maybe family, that kind of stuff. And it's that question of, is this it? What happens now? I've done the, I've been at school or uni and had that life and done this and been climbing the career. And now I've got a partner or kids or whatever it is. And you really hit that point going, the body's not as flexible or as adaptive as it used to be. And am I, am I giving up on that? Or do I just ride this career thing now in this desk for the next 20 years and then what do I do after that? That real question of, is this it? Because that, what happens now? And trying to give people some tools around how they can build that narrative around, well, what do you want it to be? And what do you really want it to be? And then once you think about that and figure that out, how do you then go manifest that and make it happen? Like, you're not going to yell it out to the universe. Like, I'm not here to sell you woo magic and karma or any of that stuff. How do I go out and actually make some of this happen? If you're in that position, that middle of the curve thing of going, what now? Is this just it? How do I help people navigate that? Because that's literally what I'm doing. That's what I've been doing for decades and I'm doing the same now, looking forward, going, what happens now? Like, where, where do I go from here? So I don't know. That's the working thesis at the moment. And we'll, I'm trying to wrestle that into something that may end up looking like a book one day. That sounds good. Now, from your adventuring, from your journey, Tell me, what have you applied through those experiences to the business world? I think it's those lessons of it's not the fastest, it's not the strongest. It's a skill set that has nothing to do with your genetics. People think you have to have a particular advantage that you were gifted or born with or you're lucky or whatever it is. And I like taking my experiences and really taking those myths away from people, deconstructing it to show them that it's a story that's completely wrong. And if I had to 
embrace it into one term, like I use the term anti-fragile, so I'm stealing that from Nassim Tlaib, but that concept of going, we get fragile. If you're fragile, if you take a hit, you'll break. And everyone for the last few years has been talking about resilience and well-being, and resilience is really about you can take a hit and you come back to where you were, like you recover. And I think that's missing the next stage of the conversation, which is that anti-fragile, which is the opposite of fragile. When you take a hit, you get broken. When you take a hit, you get stronger. So really, how do I build the toolkit that says, the harder it gets, the better I get? How do I end up in that pool of people? And part of that is, how do you do that as an individual? What are the skill sets? What's the toolkit? What do the mental models look like? And then there's part of that about a business. What does an anti-fragile business look like? What are the heuristics? What are the cultural values? And how does that business present compared to a business that might just just be resilient? Or a business that is fragile, what is going to set those groups apart? And then how can leadership manifest that through the business? And how do individuals manifest that? And you have to do both. As As an individual, you can do just the individual bit. But as a business, you must do both. You need to look at it from a business point of view and a human point of view. I always tell, you know, I'm talking to HR people like, you, didn't, you don't hire employees, you hire humans. And humans come with all this crap that you have to deal with. So if you can start working with them to help them develop as a human, there's nothing to do with their job. All of a sudden, that gives you a really strong cohort. Then you can integrate and use these tools as a business And now we're really motoring, we're leveraging. And that can be an interesting conversation because it's not about motivating and things like that. It's not about woo kumbaya stuff. This is really about asking people or helping people ask themselves some really hard questions and then helping them navigate and build a toolkit and a mental toolkit to progress. And then how do I leverage those people and integrate them into a business that has a toolkit and a heuristic set and a behavioral model set? That emulates that, that fosters that, and works symbiotically with that. So there's a there's a lot to unpack there, but that's really kind of the roadmap of, of where I take people through. And I think businesses and organisations now, I think where the world's going is that for too long, a lot of people feel like just the number in whatever organisation or company mm. they work in, and people that are getting better um, retention rates in organisations are actually going, okay, how do we? How do we look after the well-being? How do we make our team better? Because if they're better from a mental perspective, emotional perspective, a physical perspective, and holistically, they're going well and we're supporting them not just in work goals, but how are they supported personally in their their personal life? Well, you're going to have a better team member that is actually more productive. And I think people understand that intellectually, but then from a behavior standpoint, an emotional standpoint, that's where it gets lost. Mm. So a lot of businesses, I think, are going, oh, we actually want to make it easier for Steve to be able to do this or you know, make it not as difficult for Steve. But what they and Steve may not understand is that Steve doesn't want it to be easier. He just wishes he was stronger. He just wishes he was better at it mm. because that would translate to an entirely different mindset for him about who he is and what he's capable of doing. I use the line of going, you, know, you can give all the Bikram yoga retreats and pay rises and meditation rooms at work that you like. But if, if Paul wakes up in the morning, tomorrow morning looks in the mirror and thinks he's a, he's a terrible dad or feels that he's a terrible partner or just feels doesn't like the way he looks and hates himself, 
You can give him all the Bikram yoga in the world. It's not going to change how he performs at work. But if we go back and go, let's really start giving you some tools to help you think about, okay, I'm not happy about this, that, or the other. Let's start working on that so that all of a sudden as a business you can go, I can give these guys hard things to do and they will attack it because they're competent and they're confident and they will go and start delivering versus how do we make it easier for them? Well, they're telling you they want it easier, but they don't actually want it to be easier. They want it to be easier because they're stronger and they're more capable and they want those kind of things. A good example, I have a, a mate of mine because you know I'm a stay-at-home, work-from-home dad, so I'm always doing the school drop-off and we're chatting to a fellow dad there about kids and stuff. And he'd taken his kids out for a hike, a local hike here the other weekend, and they went out and started off in a bucketed rain, total disaster. You know how that goes. And he said to his two girls when they got home, he said, you will never remember the best day you had sitting on the couch watching TV. But you'll remember the day that dad dragged you out in the rain and you lost your shoes in the mud. It was really hard and windy. We got cold and soaking wet. But you did it anyway. And we came home and we, we unpacked that whole thing. You remember those days. You don't remember the days when it was easy. I think as parents, obviously we're both dads. I'm a stay-at-home dad as well. I think as parents and also as leaders in businesses, sometimes making it easier for our kids, making it easier for our team. The problem with that is that we take the experience away from from them. Mm. And then we're then wondering, why do they always come to us for the solutions? Well, because we're trying to give them the solutions all the time. Yeah. That's with the kids. Well, I said, I know my youngest son comes, I'm bored, dad. Good. Go figure it out. It's, it's from a place of love that you're trying to be difficult. You know, it's, as a dad, internally, you're like, you're such an ass, but it's the right thing to do. Like, mate, you've got a room full of toys. You can go outside, go play with the dog. You've got slides and stuff. Mate, you've got more than 90% of the human race. Go be bored. Go, you don't need the TV on. You don't need any of that stuff. Go do that. So sometimes it's that, it's like that parenting thing of you actually have to have difficult conversations, give them the answer that they don't want, don't solve their problems because they need to figure out how to solve their own problems. And whilst it is very uncomfortable as a dad, it's the right thing to do because then eventually I'm not going to be there for them. I'm not always going to be able to be there for them. So they need to, you know, I want them to grow up and be the kind of people that solve their own problems Mm. because we've raised them to have that toolkit and that mindset. It's challenging as a parent. It's, it's really hard, especially when you're juggling, not only trying to do that, but you know, I've got my own problems and I'm trying to get my work done and I've got to pay bills and I've got my own feelings and emotions and all that kind of stuff. And then I'm trying to deal with that tiny person's feelings and emotions and do all that as well. No one said it would be easy, but here you are. <laughs> they're your kids. They're our kids. That's the job you signed up for. So we've got to do it and we've got to make it happen. What's that anti-fragility, as you say? Yeah, exactly. It really is. Just like, you know, even our two boys have got them into jujitsu over the last, uh, over most of this year. And it's been really, really good for them. Am I trying to turn them into like black belt UFC ninja warriors? No, I just want them to understand that they're really robust kids, that they're tough, that they can get rolled around and they can push back and defend themselves and do all those kind of things. And that's not about them, as I said, being aggressive. It's really about having a mindset of confidence going, oh, if something goes wrong, I can handle myself. I'm comfortable in this. I'm not panicking or freezing up or whatever. If someone grabs you in the playground at school, my kids are like, oh, we do this twice a week. Someone grabs me and then tries to pin me and we'll do this, that, and the other. 
versus going, you know, you've been in cotton wool and someone grabs you and you just freeze because you don't know what to do and you've never experienced that. So how can I build a set of experiences for them and let them build their own toolkit so that as life throws crap at them, which life will do, they can go, oh, okay, no, I can deal with this or I can handle that or I'm not panicking and frozen about it. I've got something in the toolkit to pull out and, and use now and, and navigate through that. I think Channel 9 last year had the there was a documentary on parenting and it had the different parents that had different parenting styles. You know, there was the helicopter parent. and the- I did see bits of that, yeah. I was too scared to watch it because I was worried that it would just be so, not sensationalized, but so kind of stereotyped and who they'd picked and how they delivered it. I'm going to end up watching this and just yelling at the screen the whole time and I don't think that's healthy for me. So I saw bits of it, but self-selected out. <laughs> Yeah, I only saw bits of it, but my brother and I had the conversation around the different parenting styles. We were talking about one of the challenges they did and the kids that did better were the kids that weren't helicoptered. Mm. They weren't wrapped up in cotton wool. They had problem solving. They had a little bit of freedom within their life. Mm. And there's pros and cons to all the parenting styles, right? And I'm not going to sit here and I'm sure you're not going to and say, this is the way you should because there's different cultures yeah. and a lot of different disciplines and everything like that and generational things that have pushed people to go that way. But mm. it was just interesting in some of those challenges that the, the kids that had been given a little bit more freedom had to solve their problems themselves actually did better in the challenges. Yeah, it's a tricky thing. I like, and, and I totally agree with you. Like As a parent, I screw up more often than I get it right, absolutely, on a day-to-day basis. And I think that whole parenting conversation, you know, if you look at the parents like me who might be a little too harsh from time to time versus the helicopter parents at the other end, both of them are coming from a place of love. They all love their kids and they're all trying to do the right thing by how they feel, whether it's, I never got that as a kid, so I want to make sure you get it, or I really think you're going to need this as a kid, so I'm going to help you develop that skill. Like Every parent is coming from a place of, I want the best thing for your kids. We're just all approaching it in a different manner. And I guess all you can do is really be aware of what is the future really going to look like for our kids? Like taking my kids, for example, like with technology, I know tech and your kids on tech is a, like, how do you navigate that? My God. I always look at it going, whether I like it or not, they will grow up in a world where tech is so ubiquitous and so ingrained that me denying them that now because you don't need it, get off the screens, is not helping them. Mm. What do I need to do? I need them to learn how to self-regulate with technology. Okay, how do I do that? Well, I need to expose them to it. Yes, there are boundaries and there are time frames and what you can and can't do, what's appropriate and what's not. But then it allows us to have a conversation. Like with my six-year-old recently, mate, if you're playing that game that's making you angry, what can we, we can walk away, we can turn it off, we can remember it's just a game. Like we start to help them build that discussion around it. So really for me, it's really about what does their future look like? Not what you think it looks like, what you want it to look like. Realistically, what's that world going to look like? Okay, how can you best prepare them for it? It's not about you. It's about how can I make sure they're ready for the world that they're going to have to grow up in, which will look nothing like the world I grew up in. That's not easy. I'm not saying it's a walk in the park, but it's just conversations as a parent I'm trying to have all the time. Okay, what do I need to put in the toolkit for them? How do I help them build that? Paul, to you, through your life, how has success changed? I love the concept of seasonality, of really working through seasons in your life. For me, in my career, like I spent the first 10 years, what would typically be the first 10 years of people's career, mid-20s to mid-30s, I worked like a man possessed. Like I worked 
the equivalent of two and a bit full times jobs for a decade, like seven days a week. Like I'm not, I'm not glorifying that. It came at a great cost to me, but it also set me up to do an enormous amount of stuff in my life. Do I regret it? Absolutely not. Would I do it again? Yeah, probably, just much better than I did the first time. But there was a season for me where success was the car and the bank account and the money and the prestige and the meetings and the business card and all the things. And then there's been seasons where for me success has been intellectual. Like we got a master's degree and throwing around ideas of PhD and those kind of things. So there was really what is successful? How do I think about the world and me in it? Success has been about physical endeavors and how do I climb mountains and do Arctic expeditions and those kind of things. Success for me has been about family, like doing that now with my wife, raising our kids, being a good husband, being a good son and a brother and those kind of things. So I think for me, really, I've moved through seasons about what success truly was. And then I would hope that at some point when I'm old, I'll look back and go, success was the fact that you had many seasons and success was many different things. I think we get stuck on that linear journey of, I've got to get to 60 with a bank account that looks like that so I can tell the world to get stuffed and go to all those things. You just missed six decades of the journey. That's There was all these things that you did that you maybe thought were stepping stones that were actually milestones and things you you needed to be in and present and really celebrate and be proud of and be happy and add them to your story. But really that thing of have seasons, let success change, redefine it, win sometimes, lose sometimes, that's all normal, that's okay, and start to really build that story of different metrics as you go. I love that thought around seasons. Yeah, not my idea. So I just think I got it from a Henry Rollins quote, you know, in in winter we plan and in, in spring we strike. Like it's really that whole thing of going, life will have seasons and some will be great and some will be rubbish and that's okay. Work with that. that that's normal. That's healthy. That's nature. That's how a whole system works. So don't fight it because you're not going to win. Just go with it and see how you can build through that. Yeah. There's a reflection in the first episode of the Share podcast with my brother and he was made redundant from the travel industry when he was 40 years old. And he said he was I think he was painting the house and he had this reflection that he thought, I'm 40, I've been made redundant. But then he looked ahead and he said, I've got more years ahead of me of my work life than I do behind me. And he said that was like a real epiphany for him. Wow, I, life's not over. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's because part of that, and I'm hypothesizing here, is that he then looked at his identity not as, oh, the travel agent is over. And that, you know, the whole thing's burnt down because my whole identity was I was the travel agent versus I'm a human being and I've had a career as a travel agent, but I've got all this stuff in front of me where I'll continue to be the human being that I'm doing all these weird things. So it's that that danger of your business card being a temple that you build yourself and then you lock yourself in. And then when the words on your business card change, your entire temple falls to the ground and you don't know what to do. It's just words on a business card. Like you're, you're not that. And when you can unshackle from that, if those words change, it doesn't matter. Well, that's okay. Now I'm going to put new words on it and, and have a new chapter. And that's healthy and that's really great. And it prompted him to change. And he's got mind and body travel now, which is what he wanted to do. He saw a lot of things in the travel industry over 10 to 15 years that he was like, I could do this better and I could do that better and we need to do this. Hmm. So he had to pivot. And then COVID hit and he talks about that that struggle as well. But it's yeah. 
we kind of hit speed bumps, but the speed bumps sometimes redirect the, the vehicle somewhere else. Yeah, but you have to see it for that. Like you have to be in a position, and often we're not, me, uh, myself included, to actually see that as, oh, okay, that's, that may be an opportunity to actually do something else or now's the chance to go here or go there or, or you leverage this and take off from this point versus go, the wheels have fallen off and I've stopped. Well, they've fallen off that vehicle. Just jump in the next one and let's go. Mm. Who would you say throughout your life has been your greatest teacher? I'm glad to say that I don't have a single answer for you. Like I've had, I've been very fortunate to have lots of really, really good mentors in my life, both from a family point of view, but also from a business point of view. And then it's just a cohort of mates, if that may, just people whose lives I can look at and take little bits from here and little bits from there. Uh, and I think that's healthier than going, oh, look, I read Marcus Aurelius and I follow this and I do that. It's like, well, no, just that's a philosophy. I like the fact that that person taught me some really valuable stuff and that person taught me some really valuable stuff about who I don't want to be or characters I don't want to emulate or values I don't want to have. And, and that person taught me a whole heap about how to operate businesses and build teams and do this and do that. And that person's really taught me a lot about juggling work and family and being a dad and those kind of things. So for me, it's a mix, and I'm sure or I hope there will be new names added to that list as I go because I feel that that's really healthy to just be open-minded about where you will get that knowledge and support from and to have people who will mentors who have crushed stuff for you and gone, you know what, I'm going to push back on that belief or that value or that story that you're telling, whatever it is, I'm going to tear that thing to pieces because it's totally wrong. And that's, that's healthy to have someone come in and take your cherished beliefs and kick the crap out of them from time to time to go, yeah, could I steel man my own beliefs or those straw man arguments? And, and I think that's, that's a good thing. So I don't have a single answer and I'm really happy about that. Is <laughs> the short answer of that. That's brilliant. Now, I don't ask this question for everyone, but I'm going to ask it to you. If you're packing your, your luggage, packing your backpack, heading off on an adventure, and you could only take two books, what would they be? Uh, they'd be Endurance. So Alfred Lansing's Average of the Shackleton Adventure, I would take that. And just because if you haven't read it, like you just need to read it. Like when you read what those men went through, that is more valuable as a leadership human nature, human belief. There's more in that than a thousand textbooks. Just read that story. I think that's it. That's the second book I don't I don't know whether I'd take a second book to be honest. I think I, there's enough in that for me to go and I read so many books. Like I, I get bits and pieces out of everything and, and often I'll find I'll be in a, a mood or a men, mental state to want to read something particular or a genre particular when I'm out doing whatever. If I had to take any two books, I'd take that book and then leave room to buy a book while I'm out doing whatever I'm doing. Yeah, awesome. Now, the last question I wanted to ask you, if you could sit down with a young Paul, what advice would you give him? <laughs> I, I, I laugh because I talked about this a while ago. I wrote a piece and it's that exact question. If you could go back and talk to your younger self, what would you tell him? And I said, I'd tell him absolutely nothing, stuff that guy. Um, <laughs> And look, you would, you'd go back and go buy that stock and buy this and don't do that and don't talk to that girl, but talk to that one, you know, all, those, all those things. But, and it's a bit of a trite answer, but the answer is nothing because you can't, or you can't go back and you're never talking to your younger self. So you have to go, I'm here now 
And I'm here now because of all the right and wrong things that I did. And if I didn't do some of those things wrong, like Hmm. when I was in high school, I was absolutely 100% locked in I would be a doctor, no doubt about it. And I was literally like one and a half, two percent shy. Like I missed out by two or three marks, like nothing. Like that's a better paragraph in that paper would have got you there. And at the time I was gutted. But then it led me into pharmacy and that led me into rural Victoria and that led me to meeting my wife and yada, yada. All the good and bad stuff got you to here. So you have to accept it all. It's not baggage. It's your story and it got you to here. So rather than go, I wish I'd done this or done that, you can't. You're never going back. You're never telling that person anything at all. But you can make decisions now that the future you will look back and go, younger me was a genius. So what can you do now that you down the track will go, nailed it, champ, well done. That's how I prefer to look at it. I think that's a perfect point to finish on there. Paul, if people want to connect with you, what's the best way to reach out? Yeah, two options. One, yeah, socials, you'll find me LinkedIn is probably where I'm the most active. Uh, Otherwise, just paulwatkins.com.au. That will give you plenty of contacts, links to socials, backgrounds, my blogs there, keynotes, all the things. Your daily dose. Yep, it's all there. (laughs) It's been an enjoyable discussion. I'm really thankful for your time. Appreciative and grateful of your insights and your reflections. What an amazing story and what an amazing story is going to be ahead. I hope so. I really do. We'll, we'll, we'll do a catch up in a few years. You'll, you'll be like at a million downloads by then. So, you know, <laughs> next week. Uh, and then we can, um, we can reflect and see what the next few years are about. I really appreciate your time and I uh, look forward to keeping in touch. Cheers, mate. Appreciate it. Thanks, mate. Thanks for tuning into today's episode. It's been great to have you along for the ride. Remember to hit subscribe and share this episode with a friend. Maybe just one person you think could benefit from what was just shared. Also, if you haven't connected with me yet, you can find me on Instagram at the Steve Hodgson and also share underscore underscore podcast. I'll catch you on the next episode. That was awesome. That's good.